Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as men. And as we uh, reflect on the life of Samson, the life of so many other men in these two books, we're reminded that uh, to be a man of faith is a very masculine endeavor. And uh, I pray that you would help us to reclaim the masculinity of, of the gospel and our faith, that we wouldn't be ashamed to be called men of God, that we would seek it with everything we have, and it would be the, the core of our identity and the greatest source of our manliness. Uh, I thank you for Nathan and the work that he put into studying uh, the life of Samson and uh, careful study of the text, and I thank you for the ways in which he has uh, helped us to see that perhaps our traditional flanograph understanding of that part of Scripture is not complete. Uh, now as we embark on a journey through Joshua and Judges, I do pray that your Spirit would fill me and help me. In spite of me, just as you filled Samson, in spite of Samson, I pray that you would work through me, uh, not for my sake, but uh, for the sake of the men in this room and for your great name. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we come now to the book of Joshua and Judges. For the next many weeks, we're doing two books a week, so we're going to pick up the pace a little bit in some ways. But we've come to the end of the Torah. Now we're in what's called the um, Nevi'im, or the former prophets. We don't often think of these as the prophets. We think of them as historical books. But these are prophetic books, and they, within the Hebrew Bible, it's always been known that these are prophetic books. So there's something about the history of Israel that is prophetic. You have the former prophets, which are Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then you have the latter prophet, or uh, yeah, the latter prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then the twelve. So the latter prophets are books of prophecy, which we're familiar with. And then the history of Israel is called the former prophets. You'll notice that Ruth is not included in that. And neither is Daniel. Neither is First and Second Chronicles. So the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament, is divided differently than the Bibles that we have. And I prefer the Hebrew order. The order that we have is a Septuagint order, which, uh, Scott Hanson, you're a Septuagint reader, <laughs> admittedly. <laughs> so Scott li likes the Septuagint order. But the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So the church adopted, because the New Testament is Greek, adopted the Greek order of the Old Testament. That's why we have it. But the Hebrew canon is in a different order. And so the former prophets, I like to keep it together this way because it's likely that Joshua judges Samuel and Kings. Those are only five books in the Hebrew Bible. We divide up, them up into six books. But it's likely that they were all written, ultimately, their final edition, by the same pastor, prophet in Babylon. So there's, it's not for sure, but there's a lot of hints throughout these books that they're compiled after the date. So what probably happened, this is only a theory, but it's uh, one of the prevailing theories that would call these, these books, the former prophets, the Deuteronomistic history. 
So what probably happened is there was someone, when Babylon was knocking on the door in Jerusalem, someone who cared about Israel's history went to the temple and grabbed the, the important scrolls. So you'd have the Torah scroll, you'd have the Deuter Deuteronomy scroll, then you would have the court history. So, so this is based on documents and probably edited of documents that were written close to the time that these things happened, court histories. Because as we get into the life of David and Solomon, you'll see that the royal secretary is an official position. His job was just to write down what was going on, and he had access to everything. And so it's likely that somebody who cared grabbed these scrolls and took these scrolls with him to Babylon. And then he opens the Deuteronomy scroll, puts it over here, or over here because they go from right to left, puts it to the one side, and then he opens up all of these historical court histories and endeavors to put together a theological treatise that would explain why it was that Israel was sitting in Babylon. It's the Deuteronomistic history. Now that's a theory, okay, but I think it's a good one because these books flow together. They're trying to tell one coherent narrative and the one thing that holds them all together in addition to style is they don't glamorize the, the Israel's history. It, it, it's as if the author is trying to explain why it is that they're sitting in Babylon. We are in Babylon because our kings failed us. We are in Babylon because our priests failed us. We're in Babylon because we listened to the false prophets and we wouldn't listen to the true prophets. And there was ample warning when the north fell in 722 BC, but we in the south, the, the Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, we did not listen, and so God was patient with us for another century and a half, but eventually in 586 BC, he brought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians just as he had brought Sennacherib and the Assyrians to destroy the north. So I think that's a really solid historical theory on, on how we got these. So we, we, we are dealing with a level of editing and you can see that it's a pastor theologian who cares that the, the nation of Israel, that remnant that's preserved in Babylon, doesn't throw away their faith, doesn't throw away their history, but can rightly understand what's going on. We broke covenant with God. We broke Deuteronomy. So a really good strategy is be very familiar with Deuteronomy, and as you're going through the Deuteronomistic history or the former prophets or the historical books, it's all the same, as you're going through Joshua through 2 Kings, note all the ways that they break Deuteronomy, which brings them to all of the curses of Deuteronomy 28. So we do see at the end of 2 Kings, we will see this in two weeks from now, that at the very end of this theological history, the author provides some hope. So Jehoiachin is put down into a Babylonian prison. And at the very end of 2 Kings, he is let out of prison and joins the king's table. And so at the end, we're sort of like at the, at the end of Deuteronomy, where the people are on the edge of the promised land, just waiting for something. At the end of 2 Kings, we're, we're at the edge of exile, ready to go back into the land. And in, at that point in God's revelation, there's been all these prophecies, including in 2 Samuel, which we'll get to next week, 
that God's not done with Israel. There are still unconditional promises to be fulfilled. There's still a king to come. There's still the great prophet of Deuteronomy 18 to come. There's still a great priest to come. And that's where in this uh, second temple period, as the people are restored to the land, they rebuild their temple, Ezra, Nehemiah, and uh, all the Persian period prophets, that's when the messianic fervor begins to bubble up. They begin to expect, wow, we're not destroyed. We were in exile for 70 years because of the former prophets. We know now why we were there. It was our fault, not God's fault. And now the promises that God gave to us in our history, which have been preserved for us in these books, will come to pass. And now that's when we start to see all this messianic expectation. And so the Spirit of God is working, not only in their history, but also in the way in which they're preserving their history to to prepare them for the Messiah. And it's just amazing that they missed it when he did come. But there's good reasons for that. We'll get to that getting a little bit ahead. But what I want to show you is that this all fits together and it's helpful to, to look at the forest before we examine the trees. Look at the forest. It's, it's all working together to get us ready for Jesus. So having said all of that, let's get right into it. I was going to read a little bit, but I think I wasted my introductory time on that. Well, wasted is not the right word, is it? I used very, very wisely, like the wisdom of Solomon, my introductory time. So we're going to look at Joshua and Judges. This isn't... Is it... Do I need to turn it on or... Well, Peter's figuring that out. Let's get into uh, (laughs) double intro. Here, Peter, you can, I trust you'll be able to figure this out. But let me, while, while Peter's doing that, let me just read to you Joshua. So remember, at the end of Deuteronomy, we're just about ready to go into the land. So the book of Joshua picks up where the Torah had finished. I would say probably the writing of Joshua, if it's somewhere in the 580s, we're like 900 years after Deuteronomy was written. Big gap, right, in, as far as the recording of sacred history. Now, using sources that are closer to the time. But in this final edit, this is where we're at. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, 
that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. A couple of themes that jump out at me there. Be strong and courageous. And if we continued reading, that, that gets repeated several times. At the end of Joshua, he's going to commend that to, to the people. Be strong and courageous. That is, have faith. So one of the great themes of the Deuteronomistic history, the former prophets, will be have faith. Be strong and create, courageous. The second thing is keep the law. Do not turn from it to the left or the right. Meditate on this, the book of the law, night and day. We're going to see that over and over and over again. And what they failed to do, they failed to have faith. They failed to be strong and courageous. And Israel failed to keep the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the law. So the intro to the former prophets is setting us up for the conclusion, which is exile. And you'll remember from Deuteronomy 28 that exile is the ultimate curse. After all those curses, the last one is you're going to get kicked out of the land. And that's a picture of the final hell. The ultimate exile is hell. So we'll get to the typological features later. So let's take a look at the book of Joshua. There's three major sections in the book of Joshua. You have chapters 1 through 12, which is conquering the promised land. Go in, take the promised land. And then the second major section is chapter 13 through 22, and that's dividing the promised land. And then finally, you have a small, almost like an appendix to the book in chapters 23 and 24, which is keeping the land. If you want to keep the land that you've inherited, you have to keep covenant. And so Joshua leads the people in renewing the covenant with God. That's where you get, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What he's saying there is, if you say you're going to keep the covenant, just realize you are agreeing to the blessings and the curses. And if you don't keep the covenant, you will get the curses. And he warns them, just as Moses had warned them. So it's a very neat structure. It's a very simple structure for a book. Go in and take the land, that's the first part. Then divide the land, that's the second part. And then a little appendix at the end. You want to keep the land, then enter into covenant and keep your word. So the first part we're going to look at is conquering the promised land. And we can divide these first 12 chapters into four subsections. Chapter 1, we see that Joshua is chosen to succeed Moses. Chapters 2 through 5, we, we go with Israel as they cross the Jordan into the promised land. Now that is really exciting because for the first time since Jacob, they're in the promised land. And then in chapters 6 through 8, we get uh, to zoom in on the first two battles. The battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai. And then after that, we don't get a very detailed account of the battles. And in chapters, uh, the end of chapter 8 through to the end of chapter 12, we just get sort of a very macro view of conquering the promised land. So let's take a look at this section of the book. All right, conquering the promised land. There's four things I want to talk about in this, in this section. Most of the theology that I want to talk about tonight comes from this first half of the book of Joshua. I mean, there's, I guess, most of the theology I want to talk about in the book of Joshua comes from this first half. So we're going to talk about 
the fact that Joshua succeeded Moses, the implications theologically that the people, that Joshua led the people into the promised land, crossing the Jordan, and then what happened at Jericho and Ai, and then conquering the land itself. So let's talk about succeeding Moses. So we get one chapter where we're told that Joshua is the new Moses. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Uh, remember, we're still on this macro-typological level. God is fiercely committed in the Old Testament to uh, address rehearsal of the gospel. And as we've been talking about, if Moses embodies the Old Covenant, Joshua embodies the New Covenant. In fact, he embodies the very person of Jesus Christ. And, and that goes right down to their very name. When the angel appeared to Joseph, the husband-to-be of Mary, and says, do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. She is conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you shall adopt that son and name him Joshua. Now, if you're jo Joseph, that, that has significance because there's one great Joshua in your life. And then the angel goes on and says, because I want you to name him Joshua because he's going to save Israel from their sins. In other words, he's going to uh, bring about the fullness of the blessing of the covenant for Israel. And you have to get yourself into uh, Joseph's mind at that time. The ultimate blessing is for those Romans to go away and for you to have your own kingdom in the land. The land is crucially important. And so he's going to save his people, Israel, from their sins. Now, the implications, if you're a Jew and you're reading that, well, that, what's really important about that is our sins, it's another way of saying our broken covenant. He's going to save his people from their broken covenant what do you need to be saved from? The curses of a broken covenant. What are the curses of a broken covenant? Exile, and with that comes the overlordship of other nations. And all, there's a whole bunch of theology in the Psalms and, and in the prophets that talks about actually the ultimate blessing for Israel is not only to be in the land, but for them to be the center of a superpower that is global and universal, that the king uh, of Jerusalem, the Davidic king, is the king of the world, Psalm 2. So I want you to name him Joshua. That's the, the Hebrew name for Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. And he's going to deliver his people from broken covenant. He's going to restore the, the ultimate promise of the land and the power of the Davidic kingdom. That's, that's what Gabriel's saying to Joseph. And so in the New Testament, there's this acknowledgement that we just skip past so quickly that, that Jesus and Joshua on the typological level are connected. And I want to say, show you three ways in the book of Joshua that we can now apply that typology. Number one, Joshua in the book of Joshua is a new Moses, but Jesus is the ultimate new Moses. Number two, Joshua is the commander of the Lord's army, but in Joshua 5, he meets the actual commander of the Lord's army, which is the pre-incarnate Christ. I love that. Type and anti-type, face to face. Joshua doesn't know that he prefigures Jesus Christ, but Joshua 5 knows that. And you have the two Joshuas, Joshua the son of Nun and Joshua the son of Mary and Joseph in his pre-incarnate form face to face. We're going to talk about that. 
And then third, the giver of the land. Joshua is the one that then gives the inheritance to everyone. And ultimately, when everything is said and done, after every foe is conquered, after we are truly saved from our sins, after we have a new heavens and a new earth, who's going to parcel out the new universe, the new heavens and the new earth? Where, where are you going to get your allotment? Where, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, not, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? It, we have an inheritance in the eternal promised land. We have a place with your name on it and my name on it. And at the end of the age, Joshua, the Christ, is going to tell you what your address is and he's going to give it to you as an eternal inheritance. That's awesome. Very awesome. So don't worry too much about real estate this side of glory. Let's take a look at the new Moses. Joshua is the new Moses. Five ways that we see in the book of Joshua that Joshua is the new Moses, and then we want to look at how those prefigure Jesus as the fulfillment of Moses and Joshua. So it just gets layered, right? So number one, Joshua is the Lord's choice just as Moses had been the Lord's choice. The Lord chooses Joshua to be the successor to Moses. We see that in Joshua 1, 1 to 9. I choose you. And the Lord promises to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. In other words, you are the new Moses. Everything I gave to him, now I give to you. That's Joshua 1, 5. Uh, Secondly, Joshua is told in Joshua 5 that he must remove the sandals from his feet because he's standing on holy ground. What does that remind you of? Yeah, Moses in Exodus 3 with the burning bush. So, so with Moses in Exodus 3, he sees a bush that looks like it's burning, but it's not. He gets there, and the bush starts to talk to him. We know it's the pre-incarnate Christ speaking to him from within the fire. We talked about that in Exodus. It's the pre-incarnate Christ representing the full Godhead speaking to Moses. Now in Joshua 5, we have the same one, the commander of the Lord's army, the pre-incarnate Christ speaking to Joshua, and he says, remove the sandals from your feet for you're standing on holy ground. What we are supposed to see is that the same one who commissioned Moses to deliver his, God's people from slavery is now commissioning Joshua to lead the people in a, a faith battle, a holy war. Number three, the spies. You'll remember what happened in Numbers 13. Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land they came back. How many were in favor of taking the land right away? Two. How many were against? Ten. Good. That's good math. Yeah. Twelve. Um, and because of that, the ten swayed the people, right? The ten spies swayed the, the, the nation not to go in. They, they incited a lack of faith. So you might say, well, let's not send spies again. Because they're right there. They're, they're in the land. Now, what if they send spies and the spies come back and they say, you know, I, I, I don't think we can take it. They, they have to cross the Jordan again and go back and walk around the wilderness. It's risky. Now, what does Joshua do to mitigate his chances, though? 
How many spies does he send? Two. He probably handpicked them very carefully. Where's my Caleb and where's my Joshua? You guys, go in, whatever you do. When you come back, good report. Good report. That's what we're looking for here. But, but, it is interesting. Why, why that historical detail? Well, it happened, number one, but it also connects Joshua and Moses. Or, yeah, Joshua and Moses. They both sent spies. Number four, uh, they both led their people through parted waters, right? So Moses led Israel through the parted waters of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. And when we get to the Jordan crossing, it's the same thing. They come, and they're there, and the priests bring the Ark of the Covenant down, and when they just dip their toe in, and they walk through on dry ground, and the people with the Ark, the priests with the Ark are holding it, and everyone goes by them. And then when they come out, after they get their 12 stones, memorial stones, then they come out and the waters go back together. Now there's going to be a third time that that happens in uh, 2 Kings, so watch for it. We want, to, we want to note that. That's a motif or a type scene that we want to, what, what's going on there. Uh, but as of right now, we've seen that happen twice. The waters have parted twice. That necessarily connects in our minds Joshua and Moses. Number five, I didn't put it up there, so I missed it. Uh, Joshua, we're told, the, one of the first things he does when he gets in the land is he leads Israel in a celebration of the Passover. And that reminds us of Moses because it's through Moses that God instituted the Passover in the first place. So we're like, okay, Joshua's continuing these mosaic traditions. He's not starting something brand new. It, we see continuity. The, the Moses project is going forward. And number six, just as Moses defeated two kings, Sihon and Og, and we're going to read about that in Joshua 12, 1 to 6, we're going to find out that Joshua is going to defeat 31 kings. But you have both Moses and Joshua leading the people in victorious campaigns against the enemies of God. So there's six ways that Joshua is portrayed as the new Moses. Now, we're not done because what I want to show you now is that Joshua is superior to Moses in every one of these which we don't often think about because Moses is the great prophet, and I agree. Uh, and, and there's a lot of ways that Joshua just doesn't seem to have as big a footprint in the Bible. And yet, if he's a type of Christ, he has to be superior to Moses on the typological level. And we see it, it's actually there in the text. So whereas the Lord threatened to abandon Israel and not lead Moses into the promised land... You remember that in Exodus 33? I'm not going before you. I'm going to destroy these people. This is over. In Joshua's case, the Lord unconditionally promises Joshua, I will not leave you or forsake you. That's, that's a superior. Yes, Yosef. Good. So Moses is acknowledging the superiority of Joshua. I appreciate that. And what's the, what, what text was that? Deuteronomy 1? Deuteronomy 1, 37 and 38. Note that. That's awesome. Thank you. So, so whereas Moses was always having to intercede for himself and the people to secure God's continuing presence on this campaign, God right up front says, I'm, I'm just with you, Joshua, unconditionally. Now, that's really important on the typological level because the Old Covenant is conditional. 
You do what is right, you'll be blessed. You do what is not right, you will be cursed. And here, through Joshua, who is prefiguring Christ, we're told, I will not leave you or forsake you. That, that intimate presence of God with Joshua foreshadows the fact that we are going to receive unconditional promises through the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Therefore, be strong and be courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. Secondly, whereas 10 of the 12 spies that Moses sent came back with a faithless report in Numbers 13.25-33, both spies that Joshua sent came back with a faithful report in Joshua 2.24. So it's the same number of positive reports, 2 and 2, but the percentage is 100% versus whatever 2 of 12 is. Didn't do the math. So that's superior. We're, we're good to go. Let's go in. Uh, number three, whereas Moses led Israel through the waters to come out of slavery in Exodus 14, so that's good. We're coming out of slavery. Joshua is leading Israel through the waters to come into the promised land. Number four, whereas Moses celebrated the Passover in Egypt and then in the wilderness in Numbers 9, Joshua celebrated the Passover in the promised land. So this really is a now a, a memorial ritual. We're remembering that we were slaves, but now we're in the land. We're in the land. That's superior. That's, that's better. Number five, whereas Moses defeated two kings and conquered the land for two and a half tribes on the east side of the, of the Jordan, Joshua defeated 31 kings and conquered land for nine and a half tribes. Lastly, whereas Moses died on Mount Nebo in Deuteronomy 34, Joshua receives a personal inheritance in the promised land. It's the new covenant. It's, it's the Christ, Joshua the Messiah, that will bring us into glory. The old covenant was never intended to do that. So this new and greater Moses, Joshua, the son of Nun, is a foretaste of the one who is the fullness of what it means to be the new and greater Moses. And Jesus Christ achieves supremacy over Moses and Joshua by filling both, fulfilling both typological antecedents. And we see that here in Hebrews 3. He, the book of Hebrews is just steeped in the Old Testament. And so these kinds of comments we want to we pick up one of the places I get this macro typology is the book of Hebrews. It runs all the way through. We're going to see Hebrews a lot today. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a new house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So, see verse 5? That, that's just shouting hermeneutically, read this typologically. Let me read it again. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant this is the part, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. He's a pattern to be seen and to be understood so that we can understand what's coming later. 
But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting is in our hope. What I'm trying to argue here is that Joshua is already, like Joshua the son of Nun, is already displacing Moses in Israel's history as the supreme figure, which is fulfilled ultimately, the writer of Hebrews says, in Jesus Christ. So that's um, one thing I want you to take out of this. The second thing is that Joshua is the commander of the Lord's army. Let's just read this. It's not a very long account, but this is one of my favorite pericopes in the whole Bible. I don't know why. I've always been drawn to it. I think, well, I think I do know why. Um, because I love the macro typology. Have you picked up on that? I, I love it so much, and this is one of those texts that I think is just a real nail in that typology to say, yes, I'm on solid ground. I'm not just coming up with things willy-nilly. It's in the text. And this, this, to me, is rock solid. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him, and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So let's start there. We've already talked about that. The, who is the commander of the Lord's army? It's the Lord. The Lord is the commander of the Lord's army. We know this for sure because of Exodus 3. We have that intertextual piece, okay? So Exodus 3 and Joshua 5 go together. We know that Joshua is standing face to face with the Lord. But he comes face to face with Joshua as a, a man with a drawn sword. And he says, are you for us or against us? You can imagine uh, with all in chapter one, all of these exhortations, be strong and courageous. Joshua might have been a little bit timid. He might have been a little bit afraid at this moment. Who's this soldier here? He looks impressive. I'm, gonna, I'm going to inquire. And he, we're told that he's the commander of the Lord's army. But if you're Joshua, what are you thinking? No, you're not. I am. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And so what we have here, if you don't know the New Testament, what you have here is a parallel between Joshua and the Lord. That Joshua is responsible to lead the flesh and blood army of the Lord into the promised land, but going before him, as we have seen in Deuteronomy, is the Lord himself, as the Lord promised, because Moses interceded for the people and said, unless you go, don't send an angel. Unless you go before us, we're not, we're not going to go in there. And so this is confirmation. This helps Joshua to feel strong and encouraged, be strong and courageous. But we know much more than that because we know that the commander of the Lord's army, and we're going to get to it, Revelation 19, is the Lord Jesus. So this is Jesus. And they have the same name in the Bible. And so what I see God doing is saying, you need to read this typologically. Yes,
Right, yeah, that's true. When the Lord appears to, to uh, Abraham, he comes just as a sojourner with two other angels. Yeah. Yeah, and Abraham was a sojourner. So, yeah, you do see these, these mat- God is matching up. This is really interesting. Yes, Hayden. Right, why, okay, why is the sword drawn? Uh, because whenever you see an angel with a sword drawn, or anyone with a sword drawn, like, you know you're about to do battle. And I think that's the point. The commander of the Lord's army is ready to do battle. We're not going back to the wilderness. Let's go. Tomorrow we take it. Oh, yeah, that's, thre- that's definitely threatening. So when Joshua's scouting out he's walking around he's probably having a sleepless night i'm just imagining this is that night i don't know for sure Uh, i don't think the text says but he sees uh, someone impressive looking with a drawn sword that could be a threat is it someone from jericho are you for us or against us no i'm the commander of the lord's army the question is are you for or against me (laughs) You're, you're either coming with me or you're not coming at all and so he flips it around i gotta keep going guys good observations the third thing I want to, to show you that where Joshua the son of Nun and Joshua the son of Joseph are connected is that Joshua is the giver of land and inheritance. And we touched on this briefly, but I want to again go to the book of Hebrews to really make this point strong. There is this chapter, chapter 4, where we start hearing about well the supremacy of, Mo, of Jesus over Moses in 3, and then in 4, all about rest. And we're trying to figure out, should we you know, take Sunday off or is Sunday shopping right or wrong from that text? It was just missing the point. It's not what it's about. What it's about is the typology of the land. Because Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt, right? And, and they, they were delivered from their slavery and they were walking around in the wilderness and they weren't at rest. They were nomads. Rest. And the whole point was that the apex of their covenant with God and God's promises to Abraham were that we're going to take you in, give you this land, this good land flowing with milk and honey where you'll be able to rest. Like basically the land will just give you its resources so you don't really have to work. And I'm going to give you peace from your enemies. It's, it's a return to Eden. Remember in the Torah, it, we start in Eden and we end at the end of Deuteronomy on the edge of the promised land. And on the big picture, it, the whole point is Adam and Eve were exiled to the east of Eden. And at the end of the Torah, we have the people with Moses about to go west across the Jordan back into an Edenic paradise. That's the Torah. That's the, the big picture. But we all know what happens. They go into the land and it's nothing. There's no rest. They they have to work hard. They're fighting enemies all of the time. They're worshiping idols. They're dying. This isn't Eden. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is picking up on here. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Look at verse 11. 
What, it, what is that alluding to? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Does that ring a bell with 1 Corinthians 10? The writer of Hebrews is thinking about Israel's history typologically. Joshua took us into the land, sure, but we didn't have rest. And then in verse 11, what we see is the writer of Hebrews positions the people he's writing to in the wilderness again, just like we talked about when we went through Numbers. And so in the wilderness, we have uh, God's people, uh, both Israel in, in the Old Testament, and now us in the church age, and we want to get into God's rest, which is not about Sunday shopping. It's about the new heavens and the new earth. That's what it's about. The Sabbath rest promised here is resurrection from the dead and a place, an inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth where there is no sin, there is no struggle, there is no death, there is no work, there is no war. There is just blessing, 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 blessing. And so what we get here in Hebrews 4 is this understanding of the typological significance of the book of Joshua. Now I think I need to ask, see if there's any questions. Not insights, but questions before we move on. Because you, this is crucial to understand. Do you see how that works together? So we have, well, any questions on this point? Okay. So I've tried to paint for you three ways that Joshua the son of Nun is a typological picture of Jesus the Christ. Joshua the son of Joseph. Number one, he is the new and greater Moses. That's true of Joshua, the son of Nun. It's true all, more fully of Joshua, the son of Joseph, the Christ. Number two, we have Joshua 5, where we have the commander of the Lord's army, Joshua, the son of Nun, face to face with the ultimate commander of the Lord's army, the pre-incarnate Joshua, the future son of Joseph. Number three, both the Joshua, the son of Nun, are to deliver rest in, a, in, in, in an Edenic paradise. That's hard to say, in an Edenic paradise. But we know that Joshua fails to bring the fullness of Eden because it's typology. It's prophecy. These are the former prophets. But the antitype, that is the fulfillment of the type, Joshua the son of Joseph, will bring us into the ultimate Sabbath rest, which is eternal life, resurrection from the dead, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Understatement of the year. It's amazing. Mo moving on. Now in chapter, that was all chapter one. What is more than that though, because it's all the features of Joshua. But now crossing the Jordan. We see in chapters two through five that Joshua now crosses the Jordan. We've talked about that already. One thing I want to talk about is, if you're just reading this in the Old Testament, one thing that I think is really important to do is take Exodus 14 and take Joshua 2. And if you could, if you could picture that on some kind of a string, right? So you have Genesis to Revelation on a string. And if you could pinch where Exodus 14 and Joshua 2 were on that string, and then pull them together so then you get a loop of a string from Exodus 15 to Joshua 1 that just sort of loops down here. What I want you to see, have you, I don't I may be embarrassed to say that when I was a kid I read Mad Magazine. 
Does anyone read that? It's, you know, kind of sinful probably. But, but there, on the back page, you could fold it in and see something that, what, that you couldn't see when it was out. So you would fold the page and then it would create a new picture. That's what I'm doing with the Bible here, so I think it's worth confessing that I read Mad Magazine. So you fold the Bible in like that, and what, this is what I want you to see. This is the new picture that I want you to see. We're sitting in Egypt in slavery. Moses comes, 10 plagues, 10th plague. You have the Exodus. You're coming out to the Red Sea. Pharaoh is chasing you with his army, and you go through the waters of the Red Sea. Now, if you've pinched those two chapters together, now you're crossing through the waters of the Jordan River, and you come out, and you're in the Promised Land. There is a theological point there that is super important. You were a slave, and now you're in the Promised Land. Now, take that, that historical movement and do it ultimately in the Gospel. We're enslaved to our sin. Jesus comes and dies on the cross as our Passover land. A lamb, and we are coming now out of our slavery. If we apply the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus, to our lives, we come out of our slavery to sin. And the devil is chasing us because he hates that we've been liberated. And our own sinful flesh is chasing us, trying to get us to go back to Egypt. But we pass through the waters of baptism. And before you go under the water, you're saying, I was a sinner, lost. And then you're dunked under the water. And when you come out of the water, you say that you have a place in the new heavens and the new earth. That's baptism. Now, we know that there's this loop down here, right? Exodus 15 to Joshua 1. So in baptism, you're saying that you are going to go through the waters from slavery to promised land, but you know that experientially you've got to walk in the wilderness. But baptism itself is a picture of total deliverance from one to the other. That's what you're saying by water baptism. That's why I do not believe that circumcision is the old covenant equivalent to new covenant baptism. I just don't, I don't see it. I see the Red Sea and the Jordan River. That's baptism. That's Christian baptism. And it's directly connected to the salvific moment of the Passover lamb, which is Jesus. It makes a lot more sense, which is also means you have to be a believer to be baptized. Or at least it makes the most sense to me. I wouldn't break fellowship with somebody who doesn't agree with me on that, but that's how I see it. So I wanted to just point that out to you, that we want to see the two crossings as one movement of God's people, one salvific moment, although you have the wilderness in the middle. Which again, going back to numbers, then, well, this is where we are. No wonder life is hard. Because we're in the book of Numbers. It is the typology that we are living out. It's, it, the book of Numbers in the wilderness is the dress rehearsal that is our reality now in the gospel. But the good news is we're not going to be in the wilderness forever. I think they're the same. I think they're one baptism. Like in Ephesians 4, one baptism. I, I see them as one baptism. One baptism and so... I think God can do that. He can take two events and make them one. That's how I see it. But, but you, maybe you're right, and I just don't have time to investigate it, but we can talk more after. 
I want to show you this video. It's only two minutes. I was at the very place where Joshua crossed the Jordan. And, I, and how do I know that that's the actual place? There's lots of reasons. I'll tell you some of them here, and I'll maybe give you a few more after. Oh. Maybe it won't work. Will it work? Well, it's embedded, so as long as you have volume. Yeah, it, you don't need to come up with anything else. It's actually in. If you just put volume on. Well, we can move on. It's not that important. I post it on the website. So don't worry about it. So le let me just tell you what's in the video. Let's just move past this, Peter. It's on the website. Can you just click me past it? You have to, uh, I don't know, hit exit or escape. How do I do that? Hit play, I don't know. All right. Well, just look at the vi visuals while I tell you about it. So right across there where we're going, that's Jordan, this country of Jordan. This is the Jordan River. And right across there is Mount Nebo. Like we are right by Mount Nebo. And I am a 10-minute drive from Jericho. And exactly on an east-west axis, on a straight line, is Mount Nebo and Jericho. We are right at the place. If you drew a straight line east-west from Mount Nebo to Jericho, we're right there. Also... It's the only place on the Jordan River where the banks are fortified. Everywhere else they get washed out with mud. And so not only for Joshua in his time, but throughout all of history, this has become the place where everybody crosses the Jordan River. So all different times of history where this is where they crossed. So we can't be absolutely sure, but 99% sure that this is where Joshua and Israel crossed. Now, the Jordan River was potentially higher than it is now because the water levels are quite low. Nevertheless, that's, that's where we are, uh, which is probably where Jesus was baptized because he's fulfilling typology, right? Why is he baptized in the Jordan River? He's re-entering the promised land to do what they failed to do. And so he's going to go to the place. John is going to go to the place where Joshua crossed because he's call, John the Baptist is calling people to cross the Jordan River again. That's what he was doing. He was, repent of your sins. Let's enter the promised land as a nation again, afresh, a new time. And John's going to pick the place where, jo where Joshua crossed. And so this is not just where Joshua crossed, but John is doing his ministry where Joshua crossed, which means that this is where Jesus was baptized, which is really cool. Let's just see if we can't go on. Now the next thing that I want to show you, Joshua 3 is an amazing chapter. In Joshua chapter 3, we have Rahab the prostitute who has faith in the God of Israel, and the, the two spies that are there tell her that if she wants to live, tie a crimson cord in, in the window, and when they destroy the city, they will make sure that she and her family, if they're all together inside, will be delivered from the slaughter. Now that sounds remarkably like 
the Passover in Exodus. And that's the point. They are giving her a Passover ritual so that she can be saved just as they were saved. What I love about this is in the book of Joshua, again, because God is so committed to the typology, he gives us Gentiles an actual Passover event that we can connect to in a way that Israelites cannot. Jews cannot connect to Rahab the way we can. Rahab is our patron saint, if I can use those words, of a Gentile Passover. And what I love about her also is in the text, it's really clear that she is not a recovering prostitute. She is operating an active brothel. And why is that important? Because it wasn't her morality that saved her. It's not as though God looked down and says, you know, I'm going to destroy everyone in Jericho, but there's a couple of nice people there that I think I'll save. No, he's saving a prostitute. And this becomes even more significant when you realize that all of the prophets, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both of them are pretty bad, but Jeremiah, I think especially, slams Israel for their spiritual prostitution. And so as they are going into the land, the two spies, and our anxiety is high, are they going to pass or fail this test? They go directly to the house of prostitutes and are like, oh no. And how does the story end? They're actually booted out of the land for their spiritual prostitution. So it's likely, I would argue, that these two men engaged in sexual prostitution at the front end, which was a foreshadowing of their spiritual prostitution as a nation later on, which would cause them to be removed from the land. Nevertheless, in space and time here, both they and Rahab and Rahab's family are saved and delivered by the grace of God. Which means that the gospel is not about works. It's not about morality. It's about faith and grace. And God puts that in Joshua 3 before the conquest for us so that you have Exodus 12, the Jewish Passover, and you have Joshua 3, the Gentile Passover. They need to go together God has always been on the typological level saving Jews and Gentiles together. This is before they take the land. And so if the land is a picture of the eternal promised land, the eternal promised land is for the Joshuas and the Rahabs. The Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, they defeated Jericho and I don't have much time to talk about this except that, no, we have no time to talk about this. Conquering the land. I don't think I have to make this point very hard because I've made it so much. The fulfillment of this, of the book of Joshua, the first section, is Revelation 19. So if you're trying to figure out what are the parts of the typology that match with the gospel, when you get to the book of Joshua, you're already in our future. You're already in Revelation 19. Now that's going to mess with us. What do we do for all of the, the period of the judges and the Davidic kingdom and all of that? Well, that's what we'll talk about later. But I'm telling you that typologically, the book of Joshua is connected to Revelation 19. I, I don't have time to read this, but what this is, is I saw, I'll read a little bit. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. I, I have to keep reading. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Who's this? This is Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army from Joshua 5. The the typology is being fulfilled in Revelation 19. And if we go on, he comes and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. That drawn sword from Joshua 5. And then he conquers the world. Not just the promised land, but the world. You got to read that. That's a fulfillment of the book of Joshua right there. Now we go into dividing the promised land. Like I told you, you can summarize these 12, 13 chapters with a map. So it makes for dull reading, doesn't it? But it's anything but dull uh, if you see that that is the typology of the eternal promised land. We already talked about Hebrews 4. If Joshua had given them rest, would we have been talking about a, a greater rest? Therefore, let's strive to go in there. Verse 11, and that's where we kept left off last time. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, the eternal promised land, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. No creature is hidden from his sight, and so on. And then we find out also that the land is fulfilled by the new heavens and new earth in Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham understood that the land promised to him was just a picture of the new heavens and the new earth the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. That's in the Bible. That's not something I'm making up. The the promised land is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Now we go to the last part, and this is keeping the promised land. You keep the covenant. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the book of Joshua. It's an awesome book. I love the book of Joshua. Now we go to the book of Judges. The book of Judges can be divided into three parts. The first part is the, just the cycle of sin. It sets up the framework for the whole book. We'll look at that. Then that we have chapters 3 through 16, which is just the, the narrative of these judges themselves. And then finally, in the last part, we're told that there's no king in Israel, and we see all, all hell break loose in Israel. The cycle of sin is fairly simple. The people are at peace in the land, but then they begin to sin, especially idolatry. They begin to to worship the gods of the women that they're intermarrying with. And so God oppresses them with uh, foreign powers. After a time, they cry out to God in repentance, so God raises up a judge to deliver them, and they have peace again. But then they go back and they sin again, so they're oppressed again. Then they repent, and God delivers them, and there's peace again. But this is a downward spiral. And the condition of Israel spiritually gets worse and worse. Then we go into the actual judges themselves. You'll notice that there's 12 judges. It's really helpful to chart them on a map. 
Uh, why 12? There's probably way more than that. There's probably hundreds of men that God used to, d- to save Israel at this time. It was a decentralized uh, confederacy of tribes, and God raised up men when he needed men. But the author is, is zoning in on 12, six major judges and six minor judges, and look how he selected them. They are evenly distributed across the geography of the promised land. In essence, what is being told here just by the judges that are named and the stories that we get is that we we have, this is the condition of all Israel. This is happening everywhere. This isn't just Issachar. It's not like Dan was just really bad seed. This is everyone. This is the whole nation, every tribe. No one is doing what is right. They all need this help, but they're all in this downward spiral. Let's hopefully get past that. We don't have time for it. Then we get into the 12 judges themselves. Now, I agree with what Nathan preached 100%. And I also agree with what the Bible project says. And this is where I think there's a paradox intentionally woven into the book of Judges. What Nathan helped us to see is that Samson wasn't so bad after all. If I could summarize it that way. That God, he was in some ways a victim. That God made him personify Israel's state. But at the same time, we do see in the macro structure of the book of Judges that things are getting worse. And the quality of the judge is getting worse. And as much as we want to say that Samson was a victim, he also brought it on himself. He broke every one of his Nazarite vows, and God was faithful to fill him with the Holy Spirit. That's not because Samson was good, it's because God was gracious. And so I agree with Nathan. And I would just add that wrinkle that it's God's grace at work in a depraved judge that both redeems his value as a judge, but also we have to see that he is, I think, demonstrating the decline in Israel. The book of Judges is ridiculously pro-king. We have to see that because you've probably all been in that Sunday school class. Maybe some of you have taught this Sunday school class and it's okay that you have, but just don't teach this Sunday school class again. You get to 1 Samuel 8 and you say asking for a king was wrong. It was evil. It was a bad idea. It was was anti-God. It was the wrong thing to do. That, I don't think, holds up in light of uh, the witness of the Bible. So let's hopscotch through the Bible. In Genesis 17... Verse 6, Abraham is told that kings shall come from him. That's, a, that's an unconditional promise from God to Abraham. In Genesis 17, verse 16, we're told that kings of people will also come from Sarai. Those are unconditional promises, that there's going to be a king that comes from Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 35, the same promise is given to Jacob. Kings shall come from your own body. This is not seen as a bad thing. This is a promise. This is glorious. This is wonderful. And if you're a nomad walking around in tents in Canaan, you can't believe that there's going to be a king that comes out of your family. In Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons, he says of Judah that the scepter will never depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is the goyim. This is the nations. We're told in Genesis 49 that there's going to be a king that comes from Judah that will be the king of kings. That all of the other nations will give tribute to the king that comes from Judah. That sounds like a good thing. 
Then we have the book of Numbers. And remember, Balaam was trying to curse Israel, but he couldn't. And in his fourth uh, curse, which turned into a blessing, he says, this Balaam talking about Jesus Christ, I see him, but not yet. I, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And one from Jacob shall, shall exercise dominion. And then it talks about how this king will destroy all of the nations that were around Moab at that time. Sounds like a good thing. And then you have Deuteronomy 17. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you. That, that verse there just, <clears throat> was it right or wrong for them to ask for a king? You may indeed ask for a king. Now the problem was, uh, if you keep reading Deuteronomy 17, God says there's a particular kind of king you need to ask for. There's certain qualifications that no king of Israel, David or Solomon included, fulfills this until we get to Jesus. Jesus fulfills all of these requirements perfectly. We're told in Deuteronomy 17, 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that's not if, when, it's not if but when, God is saying that this is going to happen and it should happen. And then you see this last part in the, in the book of Judges, Judges 17, 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18, 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. And things were bad. In Judges 19, 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite had to go after his concubine who proceeds to get gang raped. He cuts her up and sends her around because there's no king to say that that's not a good thing to do. There's no justice in the land. Judges 21, the very last verse of the book, as Nathan already said, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What does the force of this tell us? All of the scriptures before Judges and then the book of Judges itself. It says, you better ask for a king. You need to get a Deuteronomy 17 kind of king. And what this is setting us up for is Samuel and, and, and this idea that asking for a king is a good thing and getting the Davidic monarchy is a very good thing. And we know from the New Testament, absolutely, because Jesus is from David. So Judges is very pro-king. The book of Judges sets up a very pro-king, messianic hope, canonically, in the Bible. But it's also anti-king. And we don't want to miss this. I don't know if you noticed this. I said that there's 12 judges in the book of Judges. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, Ibzon, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. That's 12. But look at right in the middle, textually in the middle, not like almost at the beginning or the end, but right smack dab in the middle is a man whose name is Abimelech. Abimelech is Hebrew for my dad's the king. He is the son of Gideon. That first judge that we get a lot of information about and he was a good judge more or less he was a bit timid and lacked faith and all the rest but Israel wanted to make the, him their king he says no, no no I'm not going to I'm not going to be your king but actually give me your gold and then he has a son and he names his son my dad's the king <laughs> you know, 
okay, Gideon, you, you're, you don't want to be the king, but you're acting like the king, and you even, you even telegraph that you are the king by naming your son, my dad is the king. Uh, so there's one, two, three, four, five, six anti-king passages that I want to highlight before we're done tonight. Number one, Judges 8, 22 to 24. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, whose name, by the way, is my dad is the king. Uh, the Lord will rule over you. Sounds spiritual? Smoke and mirrors. Verse 24, Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you though. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. He begins to tax them. That's what kings do. Taxes. I'm not going to be your king, but I will tax you. Judges 8, 30 to 31. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son and he called his name Abimelech. My dad's the king. Gideon, I won't be your king, but I'm going to tax you and I'll have a royal harem. Judges 9.6, all the leaders of Shechem came together and all of Beth Milo and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. The first king of Israel is not David, it's not Saul, it's Abimelech. And he rules for three years. But he dies one day after three years of reign when a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and it crushed his skull. I think that's intentional in the way it's written. Headship, leadership, kingship. A woman, we're a men's group, right? This is online, but a woman crushes the head of the first king of Israel. And the head is a picture of that kingship itself. God uses a woman to stamp out this king after three years. Keep your mind on this Judges 9 passage because it's going to show up again in 2 Samuel. Judges 12. Now, th there's some minor judges that make really important cameo appearances in the book that we often just skip over. Judges 12, 8, and 9. After him, Ibzon the Beth of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside of his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. He has, 30, he has 60 kids, of 30 of each gender. And he tries to become king. He's judging, right? He's got power. He tries to become king how? Through marriage. Because he, he, he doesn't marry them within his clan, he's... He's got 60 opportunities to build relationships with other clans in Israel. He's trying to achieve the throne by alliance. That's actually anti-king because Ibzon. Anyone ever heard of him? That's the point. He tried to be king, but he's a big nobody in biblical history because God wasn't with him. God hadn't made him king. Then we have Judges 12, 13, and 14. Abdon. Anyone ever heard of Abdon? Well, Ibzon didn't get the throne, right? Because through alliance. So Abdon says, I'm going to do it a different way. Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. So becoming king by alliance didn't work for Ibzon. I'm going to build myself a militia, and I'm going to take the throne by force. That's what this is saying. 
He has a mini army within the family, sons that are loyal to him because every one of them wants to be the next king. Boys, sons and grandsons, help me to become king and then one of you might follow after me. That's the point. These are not throwaway details. Why do we need to know about how many donkeys uh, Abdon's sons and grandsons rode on? It's because this is an attempt at becoming the king, and yet God did not bless his efforts. It's an anti-king statement. So, in other words, Judges is pro-king, but it has an undercurrent of anti-king. And the whole message is you can be pro-king, but you better be pro-king in a Deuteronomistic kind of way. You, got it. You, you better be pro-king the way God is pro-king, not pro-king the way the other nations are. And that's where, in 1 Samuel 8, we'll see what their mistake was. Lastly, the last chapters of, of um, Judges have that four, fourfold refrain, there was no king in Israel. It starts with a Levite, or it starts with a son named Micah who steals from his mom, admits that he stole, and she blesses him for not honoring her. And he takes the money that he stole and his mom gave to him after he confessed, and he builds a household idol and he worships it. And then he hires a Levite to be his household priest, and the Levite agrees. And then the Danites come in. They're not happy with the inheritance that God gave them, and so they're on their way up north to conquer some land up in Laish. And I've also been to Laish, Dan. We're going to go there, Scott. It's awesome. It's very well preserved. And so they're not happy with God's inheritance. That's negative. Be happy with what God has given you. Don't grasp for something else. And on their way, they stop by Micah's house, steal his gods, his household gods, which are a problem anyway, and they steal his Levite, and they cruise up north. So total religious breakdown. The Levites were supposed to be mediating God's relationship and the covenant. They're prostituting themselves out to household gods and tribes that aren't happy with their inheritance. They, so it's ugly. And then you have another Levite who has a concubine on the side. And she runs away from him. Uh, who knows why? Usually that happens because of abusive situations. So we have an abusive, domestically abusive Levite who goes after his concubine and takes her back. They're going by Jebus, which is Jerusalem, and they say, well, let's not go in there because we don't control that city. They go to Gibeah of Benjamin, which is Saul's hometown. Note that. And they go to a man's house, and all the men in that city want to rape this Levite. Reminds us of Sodom. Whereas in Sodom, Levite did not throw his daughters out there. There was the offer, but he didn't. This, this man, this Levite, takes his concubine that he has brought back and lets her get gang raped all night. And it says in the text, I think, that he can hear her screams. But he's inside, eating and sleeping. At the end, it's very ambiguous, but she is reaching for the threshold of the house, meaning she's just trying to get back into her abusive husband. That's how bad it was outside. And the text does not tell us if she's dead or alive. The Levite says, get up. She can't get up. Is she alive or dead? The text doesn't say. But what we do find out is that this Levite cuts her into 12 pieces and sends her body all over one piece to each tribe. And that initiates a civil war 
where the tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out entirely. What's the, like, why is all this in the Bible? Because the downward spiral, and this is where I, I, I believe that you have to see the downward spiral is in the main body of the book of Judges. You get worse judges, even though God's grace continues to uphold them. Because by the time you get to chapter 17, it's hell on earth. And here's the point on the typological level, and then we're done. When humanity does not have a king, we fall apart. Religiously, morally, civilly, we fall apart. We are totally depraved. We need a king. So God, by his grace, has instituted civil government as a stopgap for us to protect us there in Romans 13 we find out that the governments that God has put in place are are his servants even a bad governor is better than no governor but this in Judges 19 is not about that because Judges is setting us up for what for the Davidic king the book of Judges is setting us up for a particular king, the Davidic king. So on the typological level, what's happening in Israel is a picture of what is happening in the human condition. And what we need is the Davidic king, Jesus Christ. And Jesus will make everything right. Jesus will reign with a rod of iron. And he will bring peace. He will restore order. He will help us to worship God. And though we without him are like Judges 17 through 21, with him we are in the eternal promised land. And so this is, again, such an important book that has typological significance for us as Christians and as human beings. And with that kind of dreadful end, let me pray. I went five minutes over, but that's not bad. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. There's so much here that we didn't even touch. But I do pray that as we consider these books as prophecy, typological prophecy, not merely as Israel's history, but as prophetic hope for the future, a blueprint that we are even now anticipating living out. We pray, send the commander of the Lord's army, Joshua, the son of Joseph, to take us into the eternal promised land. We want to cross the Jordan into the new heavens and the new earth. And we have learned by our own experience and by the book of Judges that we need Jesus Christ to reign over us. And so we bow our knee and with our tongues we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To your glory, O God, our Father. I pray for these men. I thank you for them. And I pray that you would help them to retain the things that we have discussed tonight. So that they can teach it to their wives, to their children and grandchildren, to this church. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for coming.